Have you ever thought I was the Antichrist? What about me? What about me? What about me? And are people already taking the mark of the beast? Or when is the rapture? Today we talk with Bible scholar Matthew Halstead, who gives us his shocking revelations on the topic. everyone, this is what your pastor didn't tell you. Today I am on with Dr. Matthew Halstead. We're going to be talking about the end times, the mark, the beast, the 666 number. What is it? And when is the rapture? If it's happening, what's going on there? And what are we supposed to do with all of it? How are you doing today, Dr. Halstead? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. Okay. Uh, for people that are not familiar with your work and all you've done, can you give us a little bit about your your background, your podcast, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'll just start kind of with my education. I, I um, uh, have a background in philosophy. That's what I did my undergrad in, uh, my bachelor's degree. And uh, um, so when, when my intentions were in college to become a philosophy professor and uh, so had a philosophy uh, undergrad, and uh, I spent a semester um, working on a master's degree on philosophy in, in philosophy. And what ended up happening though is I, I kind of had a change of heart, and I was like, you know, I should I should study theology because one of my philosophy professors, uh, he was a Christian, and um, a lot of our stuff was on philosoph uh, philosophical theology. And um, I thought, you know, I really like this kind of stuff, so I should do theology proper. And so uh, I journeyed over to seminary, did some did seminary, and I um, started working on a master's degree, uh, a master of theology degree. And I had the opportunity to upgrade that to a PhD. And so during that process, as I began thinking about what I wanted to research and study long term, I thought, you know, I love theology, but I really miss philosophy. <laughs> and so. Um, uh, my PhD was, in a sense, interdisciplinary because it, it brought in what is known as philosophical hermeneutics or the philosophy of understanding. Um, and I, uh, I did a lot of research on um, or in the work of Hans Georg Gadamer, who was a, um, a 20th century well-known philosopher. And um, so I brought his some of his uh, philosophical reflections, I brought it to bear upon uh, the Bible specifically on Paul's use of the Old Testament in the book of Romans. Mm. And so I did my PhD, uh, finished, finished the dissertation, and then uh, I uh, worked on that, expanded it, and revised it, and then I published that. And that became uh, my book, uh, my first book, Paul and, and, and the Meaning of Scripture. And um, so that was a lot of fun. And so that's a little bit of, about my background. I work for Eternity Bible College, uh, I'm a professor there in biblical studies. I, I do admin work too. I, I'm also the registrar and I serve on the executive team. And so it's uh, life is full. Life is busy. I've been married 17 years, four wonderful children. And um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what else you want me to add, but I can. Um, that, that's pretty much that's pretty much me. What, yeah. What's what's your podcast? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bible podcast and the what this book? Yeah, yeah. So my podcast, I've been on the Naked Bible podcast, but my, my, podca my podcast is called The Bible Unmuted. And it's available anywhere uh, you can get your podcasts. And um, it's a biblical studies 
um, a podcast, but we just we're going through the Book of Romans actually now. But we touch on all sorts of different things. I do a lot of interviews as well with scholars, and the goal is pretty simple. It's just to kind of bridge the gap between the academy and the church to be sort of this crossover um, podcast where we can take the richness of theological reflection and pass it down in consumable form um, to folks who um, you know want to go deeper in, in scripture. So it's been a lot of fun. It's still in the beginning stages. I think we've got 37 episodes out is all. And so uh, it comes out weekly. And uh, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's proven to be a ton of fun. In fact, more fun than I than I realized it would actually end up being. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So your book, that's a big Oh, also, yeah, everybody go subscribe to his YouTube channel, his podcast, and definitely make sure to check out the book we're gonna be talking about today. Also, stay tuned for our interview on Adam and Romans and Paul's use in the Old Testament. So uh, that would be a really interesting interview that we're going to have later. So be patient, guys. It's coming. But um, until then, everybody check out the book we're going to be talking about today. So tell us about that book and why everybody should read it. Yeah, this was a fun project to work on. It actually started in 2022. Is he? No, 2020. Um, and so it's not officially released until February of 24. And so it's been, it's been quite a while in working on it. Um, so the genesis of it is, well, first of all, the book is called the end of the world as you know it, and it, it's available for pre-order. Now you can get it on Amazon or Lexham Press's website, just anywhere you can, you find your books. Um, but so, so the story goes that in, you know, in 2020, we had some, uh, rather interesting events happen, namely the COVID pandemic. And somewhere around that time, I'm guessing it was sometime in the summer of 2020, I had been seeing a lot of things being passed around on social media, specifically things about um, the COVID pandemic and as it supposedly related to eschatology and end times uh, speculation. And I, as I began thumbing through all of these things, you know, I think we did, we all did a lot of doom scrolling uh, during that period, at least as there's just so much going on. And, um, and so I, I really began to uh, really just kind of behind the scenes talk with my wife. And I was like, you know, I can't believe this stuff is actually going around the way it is. Um, you know, it wasn't that everything was uh, full of lies. There was just just enough of a, of a lie or deception or mistake. I don't know. Nobody shared things on purpose to deceive anybody purposely, sure. but it was just a lot of mistakes and thinking through scripture. Um, so there were lots of truths mixed in with a lot of uh, mistakes. And, and so my wife was like, Hey, you should really like talk about this. Like, you know, you need to talk public about it. And I was like, I don't know about that. I don't know if I need to. And um, because it's such a loaded topic, everybody's really passionate sure. about um, uh, their barbecue and their eschatology. <laughs> and so um, I, I, you know, I, I thought about it some more. I kept seeing all these things on social media. And finally, I was like, okay, maybe I should um, talk about this. Because one thing that was going on was the Mark of the Beast passage from Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. This whole idea of not being able to buy or sell unless you had the Mark of the Beast. And that mm. began to get connected with the COVID vaccine and all of those sorts of discussions. And so what I did one day is I pulled out my iPhone, opened up the notes app, and I just started uh, talking, uh, you know, or writing rather, uh, just some, some thoughts I had of based on things I had seen. Mm -hmm. And um, so long story short, I posted that to, I think it was Facebook. 
and um, a lot of people read it and liked it and thought it was interesting. And I, I think some did not agree with it, but many people did. And a buddy of mine who was an editor at uh, the Logos Academic blog, he he saw it. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Tavis Bollinger saw it, and he's like, "Hey," he messaged me and said, "Hey, can I put that on the blog, on, on the website?" And I said, "Sure, yeah." And and I kind of tweaked it a little bit and made it, um, oh, you know, more geared toward the readership of Logos and pastors mm. and things like that. Yep. And so we stuck it up there, and it just went viral. Um, really? I think it went. Um, I think at the time, I don't know what it is now, but I think it was like the most viewed uh, article on their website. And it got a lot of readership. Uh, a lot of people read it and was sharing it. And um, I think like Yahoo News even referenced it in one of their little articles and <laughs> or linked to it, I should say. So it just got a lot of um, uh, readership. And and so they asked me, hey, you want to write a follow-up to that? Because I was getting a ton of comments. Uh, some some Dang. Some people did not like them or like what I had to say. Um, and, and others uh, really appreciated it and freed them up and helped them think through this issue, which was my goal in the, in, in the first place. Um, and so I wrote up a follow article based on some comments that I was seeing. And uh, that was a second article. And these two articles, by the way, are still online. You can go find them. And um, so, yeah, in long story short, um, there's some discussion about, hey, you want to write a book about this? You know, you want to, you know, take this discussion a little broader and jump into it. And um, I was like, yeah, that'd, that'd be great. So I just started working on it. And long story short, just that just took a lot of time. And and so um, this year we finished it up and um, it's, it's out published uh, this coming spring. So anyway, that's a long way of saying it just it, honestly, it was just I think I think it was more out of a pastoral heart mm -hmm. than anything. It was just I wanted to help people think carefully about this, because one thing that I was seeing was the one thing that was disturbing me the most, I think, was, man, a lot of people are scared, like they're genuine, uh, genuinely scared about this topic yeah. and the stuff going around social media, it was fuel for the fright. And um, mm -hmm. and I wanted to say, OK, hold on, let's back up and reassess some of these assumptions. And actually, the subtitle for my book is what the Bible really says about the end times and why it's good news. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I wanted to bring in the aspect that does eschatology is actually a good thing. It's not something that should instill fear in us um and so forth and and so anyway that's just a long way of giving you the the genesis of the book cool awesome yeah and so as far as the summary goes could you just talk uh, very briefly about what the talk, the book talks about the different you know, chapters yeah yeah so basically the the way the book is laid out is that it's it's sort of a journey that I'm, I'm taking with a reader like there are, there are several questions and each chapter is its own question about eschatology for example will there be a rapture are we living in the end times who is the antichrist and you know what is the mark of the beast and all those sorts of things and so we go through each of those and um me and the reader we're just sort of on a journey and one kind of kind of the tone of the book is hey let's just take everything that we we think we know about the end times and and all of the assumptions that come with that. And let's just set them aside for a moment as best as we can. And let's test them with scripture. It's always good to go back to scripture and say, okay, what have we made up? What have we um, mistake, been mistaken about? And what have we gotten right? And so I just kind of encourage the reader, let's set our assumptions aside for just a moment, put them on the table and go to the, go go back to scripture. And then one thing we can find out is, okay, 
were our assumptions based on the Bible or were they based on culture? Were mm-hmm. they based on things we've just been taught without realizing that those things were not scriptural? You know, and or, or, or maybe we were correct. Maybe we were correct all along. We can, we can pick those assumptions back up and carry on. Or we can critique our assumptions by either, uh, you know, modifying them or maybe we need to discard them completely. And so that that's sort of the tone of the book. Let's just dive into this and question assumptions. And one thing I actually mentioned in the book is my own uh, sort of story in this is, you know, growing up, I heard so many things about the end times. You know, I'm a I'm a child of the Y2K scare. You know, I don't know if, if your listeners remember that, but there was so much eschatological fervor and speculation. When I was a kid, the Left Behind series was really, really big. And there was so many things that were being discussed about the end times. And quite frankly, it was frightening at times. Not all of it was, but there was a good portion of it that was quite disturbing and scary. And um, one thing I mentioned in the book is, you know, I was never, it, well, it never occurred to me to ask questions. Like when somebody would say, hey, the tribulation will be for seven years, right after the rapture, you got a seven year tribulation, and then here's what's going to happen in those years, those seven years. And, and I never thought to ask, well, show me in scripture, show me in scripture, you know, and what ended up happening is actually, actually just thinking about it, I, th- I think I do remember asking one time, like, where, what, you know, where do we get that? And, and, um, and some people really didn't know how to answer. And, and what, mm-hmm. what that showed me was, you know, sometimes we as people, we can get on the bandwagon of our own favorite interpretation and we'll run with it, you know, and, and, and we, it just becomes so much part of our belief that we, we end up confusing what scripture teaches with what we've assumed. And, and, it, and I do this, we all do this. I, I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, you know, n- nobody's objective. I'm not, you know, we have biases and assumptions that we bring to the text and we just want to be really careful that we, um, that we don't confuse our biases with the text and that we analyze our biases by the text. So that's sort of the overview, the skeleton of the book. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's designed for anybody to read. I wanted it to be a, a, a book that was not academic, but a book that engaged um, scholars who were writing on this topic. And I, again, I wanted to bridge the gap between the academy and uh, the, the, the person in the pew, you know, and I wanted to bring those two together. Awesome. Yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah, everybody, once again, go check it out. So uh, you talk about the, the day of the Lord, uh, the end times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how it's used a lot of different ways. And I guess, you know, I guess it's intuitive to think, okay, if the day of the Lord men- is mentioned, or some end times reference, it's referring to something that's happening in the future. Uh, could you talk about um, like what you talked about in the book in regards to that, and um, like why you think that you know it doesn't necessarily mean that it's in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, so when it yeah when it comes to like this question of are we living in the end times? Um, you know, it's something that comes up a lot. And 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 I just want to dissect that question a little bit or the topic in times. What do we mean when we say in hmm. times? Okay. Um, I think what most people assume here is that the in times is the same thing as the quote final events. And by final events, I mean, Jesus coming back, 
um, you know, in, in the final judgment and, you know, that, those sorts of things, that whole era. And what we have in our mind is that the end times is therefore the unique times, right? The times that are different from any other time period in human history. And it's in it's 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 those final events. And sometimes what's end up happening is, um, you know, we read some of these texts that talk about the quote in times and then we immediately think final events. Right. And there's a, there. Are, and, and what I want to do is just, again, putting aside our assumptions for a little bit, I want to go back to the text and say, well, let's look at let's look at these passages that talk about you know, the end times and what are they, you know, what are they talking about? And um, there, there's, there, I'm just looking at a couple of passages here that, that talk about it. And so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll read one of them and uh, we'll kind of uh, give an example of what I'm talking about here. Um, this comes from Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. It says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, eschatos, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So here you have the word eschatos, and it literally means last things. That's where we get the word eschatology from. Hmm. And he says, in these last days, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, that's, a, that's a podcast in and of itself. But whoever wrote it seemed to be thinking that in his time, that those were the last days, the, 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 the final events, right? And you get a lot, or not the final events, but just this period called the end days. Maybe they thought they were living in the, in, during the final events. I think there's some evidence to suggest that could be the case. We also see this in 2 Timothy and uh, chapter 3. Uh, there Paul says, quote, But understand this, that in the last days, eschatos, in the last days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pre uh, pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of go godliness, but denying its power. And I've, I've actually uh, heard this verse or uh, one similar to it quoted recently that, oh, this must be the last days because look how people are going crazy and it fits this bill, right? Mm -hmm. So he's saying these last days. Now, the question is, does Paul think, um, you know, what, what does Paul mean? Does he mean some future time, right? Uh, as like, you know, whatever, you know, or does he mean something kind of different? Um, what's interesting here is when you read on right after uh, the, the last part that I read, the, the next sentence says, avoid such people. Now, if Paul's telling that to Timothy, then it makes no sense for him uh, to think that this is some far distant future thing because he's telling Timothy to avoid these sort of people. What sort of people? Mm. The people who are doing really bad things in these last days. Now, that, that, that's really interesting. That was 2,000 years ago when that was written. And so Paul thinks, apparently, that he was living in the last days, in the time of the eschaton, eschatology, eschatos. Mm. Um, you, know, uh, you know, again, think of it. If if he was talking about things 2,000 years in the future, he would have no reason to tell Timothy, avoid those people. He wouldn't need to avoid those people because they're <laughs> thousands of years in the future, right? Um, so now one option here is, okay, maybe Paul thought that he was living in the final events. That's fair enough. Maybe he he did. I think there's some 
there there is some evidence to suggest that he thought maybe he was but although paul seems to think that at other times that he um that that he's going to he's going to die soon you know and and that you know he's not going to survive to see that second coming you know or whatever um we know though all whatever paul was going on in his mind is irrelevant at this point because we know with the passing of time 2000 years we can look back on this and say well clearly the holy spirit who inspired this text did not intend for that to mean you know 2023 necessarily right or 2024 or whenever um that you know with the passing of time we know that apparently the end times was 2000 years ago so i go through these passages that are like this and i just say hey let's pay attention to every word every detail let's not let anything go un- uncovered and i say here's my conclusion is uh, are we living in the end times yep we have been for 2000 years <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the idea so we need to reconceptualize what we think about the esch- uh, about our eschatology about the end times <laughs> my conclusion without giving away too much here um but it's worth pe- uh, saying is my conclusion is that the end times needs to be thought of as less of a season of time and more of a person and my my thought is that jesus is he, he in his body in his ministry in his in his life he embodies the eschaton he is the beginning and the end the alpha the omega he is the end and so hmm. the end times technically uh, and I, I lay this out in my book the end times technically is the time period of between jesus's first advent his first coming and his second advent his second coming and that great stretch of time is the the jesus time we call it the year of our lord right uh, the time of our lord that's the the time period of 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 jesus in a sense and and as as the messiah you know every jew thought the messiah would usher in the kingdom of god and he has it has been inaugurated he has announced the kingdom the kingdom has been advancing for 2000 years it has not been consummated yet that you know that'll be consummated when he returns so at, between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom when he returns that period is called the latter days the end times whatever um there's a lot there there's a lot more here that we could discuss but that's the gist of it yep. awesome much appreciated okay you believe that people say the antichrist isn't alive today when i'm sitting right here if you would like to know all there is to know about the mark of the beast, the rapture, the antichrist, and the end times. Comment below. <coughs> Who you think the antichrist is? Wrong answers only. For a chance to win, Dr. Matthew Halstead's book, The End of the World as You Know It. What the Bible really says about the end times and why it's good news. The contest commences on the first of december and concludes on the 15th of december the book of revelation you spend a lot of time in your book talking about how the people reading the book of revelation and the the person that wrote it wrote it you know john that they would have expected it to be understood like for that time period which is i guess maybe a little odd because it's supposed to be like a future book uh supposedly um so can you talk about why you think that it should be it should have been understood by the original audience there 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so there's a couple, there are, there are lots of things to, to say about the, the book of Revelation. And the first thing mm-hmm. to say about the book of Revelation is that it is not a book. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I say, you know, I say the book of Revelation, you know, just out of convenience and familiarity, yeah. but technically it's not a book, not in the sense that we think. Um, it's actually an epistle or a letter. And if you read, especially the first three chapters, you find out really quick that this is a letter written to seven churches of Asia Minor, or the seven mm-hmm. churches of Asia. That Asia was a, uh, you know, not don't think of the Far East, but um, the, the the modern what what is now modern day Turkey, and it was a province of the Roman Empire, a very important province of the Roman Empire, and there there, there was a, a swath of uh, Bible, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a, a swath of churches. Uh, there in Asia, at churches like Ephesus, um, Colossae, Thyatira, Laodicea, Smyrna, there are lots of them. And they were going through some sort of difficulty. We don't know the details, but perhaps uh, def- there were definitely threats of persecution. Um, we know that Antipas was somebody, he's, he's mentioned there as a martyr. And so uh, the threat of death was real. Um, and, and so they needed, uh, a word from the Lord and God gave that word to John of Patmos. Um, there's debate about who is John there. Is he the apostle John or somebody else? But, mm-hmm. um, nonetheless, um, he, he gets a vision and he sends this letter to the seven churches to encourage them. And, um, so, so the, the fact that it is a letter is actually pretty clear. Now here, here's the thing. As soon as you say it's a letter, I mean, as soon as you say that, you have to ask them another question. And that other question is, okay, what was going on that necessitated the, mm-hmm. the letter to be written? And immediately, you're, you're, that's a question that demands immediately historical research. We need to know everything we, need, we, can, we can about Ephesus and about Laodicea and Asia and just the whole situation. And I take readers through, through some of that um, about the historical situation. Um, but you have to do that. I mean, if it's sort of like if you were to eavesdrop on a phone call, right? In, but it helps to hear both sides of, of the conversation. But what if you only heard one side of the conversation? And that's what we have in Revelation. We have one side, we have John's side, but we have enough information from antiquity and from the text itself to reconstruct the other side of the conversation, the other side of the letter. In other words, the world of the recipients of the letter. And uh, so, so that demands historical context there. And once you do the historical research, you find out really quickly that, oh my goodness, there were things going on there that remarkably um, parallel uh, what, what's, what we're reading in the book of uh, Revelation. Hmm. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing here is um, something that commentators point out. I'm thinking, first of all, of Craig Keener and his magnificent Revelation commentary that everybody should buy. Um, he talks about how um, in that commentary, there's a, there's a passage that said, blessed is, is the one who reads, uh, the, this, um, uh, the contents of this book and, um, uh, and obeys it and keeps the words of the prophecy. Um, that's kind of a rough, um, <laughs> paraphrase, but anyway, uh, but how, but Keener asked the question was like, okay, well, how can you keep the contents of this letter if you don't understand what it means? <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. so what that means is, that the letters recipients, the the churches of Asia Minor, they would have had to been able to discern the meaning, okay, in order to keep the words, to keep the commands that are given to them. Now, if this was written uh, with 
you know, the future in mind, like 2000 years later, and I've heard of all sorts of fun, interesting, though sadly mistaken, interpretations that that turn some of these uh, passages in Revelation into like, um, you know, Black Hawk helicopters, that's what the, you know, the flying beasts are all about or whatever. And, um, you know, and it's like, you know, maybe a nuclear weapon goes off and you see some of this destruction in Revelation. That's really John seeing a nuclear weapon, not knowing how to describe it or whatever. Um, none of that really makes sense because, again, the original audience would have had to understand all that. And they had no concept of a nuclear weapon. They had no concept of, you know, Black Hawk helicopters. They had no concept of, you know, a vaccine for a virus such as COVID. You know, they had none of that in their category of concepts. And so so we, so what we need to do is come back aside and say, okay, what's going on? How would they have understood these texts? See, this is the problem. A lot of times, and again, I'm not like pointing fingers because I have to watch this myself. I'm guilty of this. We all are, and we all need to um, watch our assumptions. But one big assumption that we, we all have at times is um, thinking that it's all about us, right? That this text should be um, centered around our world and our context and our circumstances and stuff. And so our first question, therefore, is what does this mean to me? We never think to ask, well, what did it mean to them? You know, what did it mean to the original audience? Hmm. We have to take that step first to be sure. And I say this in my book, uh, I say this, I'll say this forever. Revelation does have something to say to our, our, our context today. It hmm. does. And it's an important message, but we cannot jump to that until we understand the original context. And then from there, we, we can begin to creatively flesh out the, the message there. So, so that's just one thing, um, you know, we have to realize that it's a letter. I think the second thing, very important, is that we have to understand the nature of prophecy. Revelation does describe itself as a prophecy. Now, here's the problem, though. In modern Christian culture, typically that word prophecy is equated with future telling. Okay, so this is an assumption that we make. It's not something that we get from the Bible. It's, you know, it's just an assumption we have brought to the text that prophecy always means future telling. Um, so if Revelation calls itself a prophecy, we plug that assumption in and we say, voila, it's all about the future. And so therefore, with that assumption in mind, we begin to read Revelation as all about the future. Now, here's the problem. The minute you start thinking it's all about the future, all about John's future, is the minute you no longer need to do historical research into the past. That's irrelevant because it's all about the future. And so this is where a lot of people unfortunately make mistakes is because they're so focused on the future, they don't need to do historical research because of the assumption that prophecy is all about the future. So what we see though, when we read scripture closely and carefully, and I can I can give examples of this if I need to, but, um, but just suffice it to say here is, we, when we read scripture, we find out that actually prophecy was not all about telling the future, right? It wasn't like Nostradamus with his crystal ball gazing into the unknown. No, to the contrary, um, prophecy, it does include at times future telling, what we would call future telling, but you can't reduce it down to that. There's, uh, there, you know, prophecy is a, has a thicker um, uh, meaning than, than that, than just future telling. There's more going on. Prophecy can be about the present. Prophecy can be about exhortation in the now, right? And so, and in fact, I think for the most part, that's what Revelation is. 
I do think, however, that some parts of Revelation are about the future, um, and uh, specifically the return of Jesus. You know, I, I I believe that Jesus will one day bodily return to the world, to the earth, to consummate the kingdom that we were talking about earlier. So that bit would be future. There might be other bits here too, but um, and we can get into that if you'd like. But but um, but but by and large, I would say Revelation needs to be rooted into its own historical context before we get into all the the stuff about the future. And, and I'll say this and I'll close with this here um, or I can expand further if you'd like. But um, here's the thing. Even once you have the historical context in place, Revelation, it, it does give us some th- thoughts about the future, I think. But we there's a lot we can't know. It doesn't, it's, it, people are going to be disappointed if they think that they can construct a, an eschatological calendar by reading Revelation. People will be surprised at how little Revelation and really the Bible itself talks about the future uh, in terms of the final events. It tells us what's going to happen, I think, but the details just simply aren't there. Um, you know, just a case in point, and I mentioned this in the book, but there was a pop, there was an email chain going around a while back, and you know these rumors sort of fly a lot, especially on social media. But one rumor was that the Antichrist was going to be a socialist that he was going to be from Europe and he's going to be A, B, and C and all these things. And I was thinking, my goodness, how do they know that? Like, how do you know he's going to be? So there's nothing in the Bible that says he's going to be a socialist. There's nothing in the Bible that says he's going to be a, a European. There's nothing in the Bible about any of that stuff. I mean, some say he's going to be a Muslim, some say he's going to be, you know, I'm like, guys, how, where do we get this? Let's just stop and pause and sip on some tea and have a conversation here. What does the Bible actually say? And what we discover is, it says quite. It says some interesting things, but it doesn't give us the details that we uh, might think it gives us. Well, darn. Okay. Well, maybe we can figure out who the mark of the beast is, and <laughs> and and the at least yeah. we can figure out that, right? Mm. Um. So 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 what was that like? Well, maybe okay. Maybe start like this. Okay. What are some, what are some popular views that aren't yours? <laughs> some popular views that are not mine. Okay. So yeah. Well, this is a good question actually because. The views have changed as technology has changed. <laughs> so used to, um, you know, people, you know, this was a little bit before my time, but I've heard these stories. It used to people were afraid of like social security numbers um, because, you know, those are numbers assigned to you by the government. And, um, you know, if, you know, if you had 666 anywhere, any of those digits anywhere, um, you, you, you probably shouldn't have those. And that, so there, there was these um, worries and fears that, man, is the social security card going to be um, the mark of the beast? Because, you know, after all, you can't really get a job without a social security card. And, you know, even the Bible says you can't buy and sell without it. So, man, this, this sounds mm. pretty interesting. Good point. Yeah. So other things came up through the years. Nobody really talks about the social security card anymore. Some people uh, have jumped onto things uh, like microchips. Uh, you know, the, the idea that you can have a microchip implanted in, in your, in your forehead or in your arm. And, um, yeah, you know, and, and so maybe a number could be implanted there. And, you know, with, uh, with our credit cards now, uh, we can take our cards and just tap on a, a thing and we can buy things. And so maybe you can just do that with your hand. Um, you know, and so people have been very afraid that that might be the mark of the beast in some way, some form or fashion. Uh, you know, and then we saw with COVID that um, 
you know, that maybe it's through the syringe, they're inserting something under your skin or whatever. So as technology changes, that changes one popular. Um, yeah, yeah, one one commentary from a, a, a well known uh, a megachurch pastor. It's not a scholarly commentary, but it's 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 a widely read commentary. Um, kind of made the statement and gave a hint that this could be uh, maybe perhaps something like the the barcode, right? When barcodes were out, and and uh, so people have speculated about that. And um, so so those would not be my view. I don't I don't think that's the case. Um, I I you know I actually think that you know we we can get into this if you want to, but actually when you read the text of scripture and when you think of the cultural context. We, we walk away with the realization that actually the mark of the beast might be something, um, well, A, less scary than we thought at least, but B, more scary at the same time. And I can unpack that if you want to. Um, but but that's sort of what I walked away thinking. Um, you want to get into some of that here? Uh, one more quick question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, go ahead. Does your book have the barcode on it? <laughs> oh, that, you know, I've never thought of it like that, but man, that's a great question. Um, okay, so here's the funny thing. Those okay. articles that I had written, the first article I wrote about this, it was actually on the Mark of the Beast. Um, I w- somebody had um, uh, called me in a comment and they said that I was an agent of Satan because I, <laughs> I was misleading people. And uh, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so uh, you've given them more more things to think about here. Um, no, um, yeah, so it's funny because, uh, you know, when you think, when it, this conversation about the mark of the beast that happens a lot, it's caked in fear, right? And 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 this is why people don't read Revelation because it's just packed with packed with a lot of um, uh, fright, you know? And so what I, what I tried to do is say, well, we've gotten a lot wrong here, I think, and I'm gonna demonstrate you know why i think that's the case and um and we kind of i think what it's going to do is help people walk away and say man we were freaking out about nothing um at the same time it, it, it opens our eyes to look out for things that actually are the mark of the beast that we've never realized before for example for mm-hmm. example and um so yeah anyway that's that's that was sort of what in, ended up happening with that chapter i think is um, helping us to 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 truly look for the signs uh, of a world gone wrong and signs of um, Satan's sinister uh, uh, plots, you know, and so and and they're and they're very surprising in many ways. Yeah. I think interesting. Okay, what's the mark of the beast? Then tell us. Okay, so when you're, when you look at scripture, uh, you notice a couple things about the mark of the beast. One is that um, it could be. Um, well, let me just start here. Revelation 13 talks about the mark of the beast, verses 16, 17, and 18. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Um, well, the first thing we notice is that the mark of the beast is often associated with the worship of the beast. It's associated, too, with the number of the beast, which is his name, 666. And so those kind of give us some clues here about what's actually going on with the mark of the beast. It's associated with worship, and it's associated with um, uh, his name and this number, this very mysterious number. And again, we're, we're operating from the assumption at this point that the first century audience can understand this text. So my assumption going in is because this is a letter um, and because John thinks that this is a letter that can be obeyed and hence understood, then I have to ask myself, how would they have understood this? 
How would the first century understood Mark of the Beast, worship of his image, and this mysterious number? Um, and uh, that's the question we have to ask. And they would not have been thinking about barcodes. They would not have been thinking about vaccines or microchips. They, wouldn't, they had no concept of those things. So we're going to start here. So what we discover <clears throat> really quickly is um, another mark in Revelation, because I think this really helps us out. If you look at Revelation 13, you get the mark of the beast. In the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 14, you, t- you get another mark. But it's a mark on the righteous. You get this in Revelation chapter 7 as well. Um, and it's a mark that um, that that um, distinguishes the righteous as the righteous. Okay, and um, so so here you have these two opposing marks: a mark of the beast, and then what um, you might call the mark of the lamb. This is something that Craig Keener refers to as at it as it um, mark of the lamb, mark of the beast. Okay, it's funny, right? That nobody ever really talks about the other mark, do they? Why why is that? Why have we never talked about the other mark? Um, well, we should. So. So what we discover about the mark on the righteous is that it's a mark of identification. It, it marks them out um, as righteous. Notice it doesn't, it doesn't seem to make them righteous. It just marks them out as righteous. Okay. And that's a very important distinction, I think, to make. And as we, as we think about this marking idea, we find out in the Old Testament that this was something that was uh, heard of there. So, for example, in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 9, that before God brings in judgment upon his people, he has an angel go off and mark the righteous so that they won't be part of the judgment. And um, you also have uh, the uh, in, in the uh, this book called the Psalms of Solomon. It's not in scripture, but it's an ancient Jewish text that, that um, I think we should all read because it gives us that context, what were Jews thinking in that period. And there's also a mark on the righteous, the mark on the, on the unrighteous there too. And, um, and so uh, what seems to be the case, and I agree with Craig Keener on this, Craig has said rightly, I think, that these marks are invisible. They're only designed for God to see, essentially, right? So when you go back to Revelation uh, 14, 13 and 14, again, we're asking, how would Jewish people have thought of this? Okay, how would they have thought of this? Well, John was a Jewish person. He was writing as a Jew. Revelation is full of Old Testament allusions, so no doubt this is also an allusion back to the Old Testament too. So with that said, we probably need to think of this as a mark of identification first. And we also need to think of it possibly as an in, in, invisible thing. It's not something that's visible at all. It's a spiritual mark. Okay, mm. if that's the mark that's on the righteous, on their forehead, right? Then go back to Revelation 13 about the mark on the unrighteous, on their forehead, on their right hand. Um, we have to ask ourselves, okay, why do we think this is a visible mark? Okay, um, it could be uh, that uh, that there's a visible aspect to that. I'll get to that in a minute because I actually think there might be here. But it's it's at least still worth asking the question: Why is this a visible? Why do we think it's a visible mark? Um, the other thing I would say quickly is that um, you know we need we need to we realize really quickly that that because um, the mark of the beast is often associated with the worship of the image of the beast that we probably need to see the mark of the beast as an identification marker as well. Okay. It doesn't necessarily like make them unrighteous as much as it shows them to be unrighteous. It shows what their, the state of their heart is. So why that's important in my opinion is a lot of people, you know, evangelicals and, 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 you know, Bible believing type people, they, they've worried that what if I accidentally take the mark of the beast? And I say, well, I don't think you can actually accidentally 
worship Satan, right? Uh, it's this is a full immersion into knowing what you're doing, and uh, and so that's that's sort of what what I want to point out is like this seems to be more of an identification mark. You know, where does your loyalty lie? Um, now, now with all marks, uh, you know, these are these are like badges of membership, right? So so in some sense, it it could make you. Uh, unrighteous, but it seems to be more of an identity marker than anything. Now, the other couple other things here is um, we need to think about um, the, that the idea of the mark of the beast a little bit further. If it's a mark of the beast, then we need to ask ourselves, who is the beast? I mean, I think that's going to help us identify the mark as well. Um, so, so a number of scholars point out that the beast in Revelation is probably has something to do with Rome has something to do with um, the Roman Empire of the first century. And the reason we know this is because in Revelation 17, um, we see this beast depicted as somebody with uh, seven heads. And and we don't have to guess what those seven heads represent because John interprets that for us. He says those seven heads represent two things. It represents seven mountains and it represents seven kings. Okay, well... Seven mountains in the Roman Empire, everybody would have known what that referred to. Rome was known as the city on seven hills. We have this documented in multiple places outside of the Bible. Okay, so for instance, the uh, Roman historian Suetonius in his biography of Domitian, Domitian was an emperor uh, who was an emperor around the time Revelation was written in the AD 90s. Um, He wrote a, uh, Suetonius wrote a biography and he talks about the Feast of the Seven Mountains, a Septimontium. And it was kind of like a Thanksgiving feast, what we might call Thanksgiving. It was to celebrate the, the you know, the, the enclosure of the seven mountains of Rome. And um, it was just a feast. And, you know, Rome was known as um, the city on seven hills. We see this in other places as well. So any Jew, when they t- heard about a seven-hilled beast, more than likely they were thinking about Rome, the Roman Empire, specifically the city of Rome. And moreover, it, that those seven heads that represent the seven mountains are also seven kings, which would make sense because that the seven, you know, the kings of Rome lived in Rome, right? Um, that was, well, it was the capital of the Roman Empire. So there are another, uh, there are a number of other coincidences here that we might, or not coincidences, but parallels with the Roman Empire that lead scholars to think this has something to do with Rome. Okay, so if 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 that's true, and I definitely think it is, and I go through this in my book, then we come back to the mark and we're like, okay, mark of mark of what? Mark of the beast? Mark of Rome? Who is this? What is this? It does seem to be a mark related to the Roman Empire. Now, now when it comes to the mark itself, we also have that number six hundred sixty-six. Now, what we have to understand in the ancient world is that um, oftentimes, uh, well, there was this practice known as gematria or gematria. And basically, it was it was taking a person's name and giving uh, and turning it into numbers. Okay, so the reason they did that is because the reason they could do that is because um, you know ancient people uh, they didn't they didn't have uh, uh, not all languages but some languages they didn't have a separate script for numbers, so they'd have to reuse their letters as numbers. So, for example, in Greek. The first letter is alpha. Well, that also acted as the number one. So alpha, beta, gamma, delta would be one, two, three, four. 
right? And so what you could do is you could take a person's name and 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 you know take take my name Matt and you could assign M its numerical value, A its numerical value, and then you would add those numbers up and that's your number. That's the number of my name. And so what's interesting is when you take uh when you when you look at Revelation 13, the 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 text says that the number is the number of an of a man's name, right? And so we think that this is definitely gematria that's being referenced here. What many scholars point out too, and I think the vast majority of scholars would agree with this, is that when you take that number, it, it seems to point to Nero. So when you take Nero's name, Neron Kaiser, and uh, you take that in Greek, that's the Greek name, and you transliterate it into Hebrew, okay, put assign it Hebrew letters, and then you make that undergo gematria and assign all the numbers and everything, guess what number you get? 666. Now, what's fascinating here is um, uh, some manuscripts of Revelation don't have the number 666. It's actually the number 616. Well, guess what? When you take Nero's name, you can spell it in a different way. Instead of Neron Kaiser, if you say Nero Kaiser, you just drop one letter. It comes out to 616. <laughs> so, so it seems as if that this is definitely a reference to Nero. In my opinion, I think that's the case. However, there's a caveat. I think Nero is himself a symbol of the of the travesty that is the Roman Empire. And uh, so I think the number, the mark of the beast is, is Nero, but it represents more than Nero. Nero is just a type of the evil that is the Roman Empire. There's also the Emperor Domitian who is after Nero. And Domitian is often referred to as a second Nero. Um, and so you have all these different things. The other thing too, is very fascinating. In other ancient sources, um, they they call an emperor a beast. So there, I, I use, put this in uh, my book. I I rely on the work of Mark Wilson, who's a scholar, and he had, he's uh, um, uh, done research on Revelation a lot too. But anyway, um, if you look at these ancient sources, and I've gone back and looked at them too, that um, you find out that other ancient people referred to Nero as a beast. <laughs> it's the same word uh, that's used of Nero. So here, so think of all the historical data that we have. We have historical data that shows that Rome was known as a city on seven hills, okay, and that Rome was the home of of kings or what we would call emperors. We also know that. Um, that uh, Nero was sometimes called a beast in antiquity. So it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that John was doing the same thing. In fact, what's really interesting, Suetonius, the historian I referred to, also wrote a biography on Nero. And he talks about how in the ancient world, people would play, would make fun of Nero and, and, and make fun of him by using gematria with his name. Uh, yeah. And they would take those um, and, and basically turn it into graffiti and make fun of him, you know, paint, paint on the city walls and things, making fun of who he was and stuff. So so that's data too, that we know people were doing this with Nero's name. So could it be the case that John is just following the custom, making fun of Nero in a sense, um, and playing with his name to bring to make a point about, um, about Nero and about the Roman Empire? And I think a very strong case can be made for that. Let me say one last thing about the Mark of the Beast. Um, the mark is, oft, is often associated with the worship of the beast. Okay, oh, I'm sorry, the worship of the image of the beast. And if you didn't take the mark, um, you know, you know, if, if you didn't worship the image of the beast, 
then um, then you could die. That's what Revelation says. We know in antiquity about the year 100 and I don't know 10, 20, 112 AD, I think, that a Roman governor named Pliny, who was governor of a nearby province out, right outside of Asia, okay, right outside the churches of Revelation. He talks about in his letters to the emperor Trajan, he says, hey, I've got Christians over here and I'm not sure what to do with them necessarily, but um, some are professing to be Christians and some uh, say they're no longer Christians, but there's some people who insist on, you know, essentially staying faithful. And uh, I try to make them worship your image and they don't, if they don't, then they, you know, get the ax, you know. Um, So here we have documented evidence of the emperor's image being worshiped. And if they're not, if it's not worshiped, then, then and Christians could suffer for that. And so really the image of, em- of the emperor was worshiped. We know it was worshiped. It's uh, um, definitely recorded in, in history like that. We also know that, um, that, you know, coins uh, bore the images of Caesar. And some of these images um, on the coins would say things like Caesar, son of God, or son of the divine one, or uh, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is savior or something. And, um, and some religious Jews, devout Jews, would not carry Roman coinage in their pockets because they thought that would be blasphemous to do that. And um, so is that the mark that's being talked about? Perhaps so, because we know that emperor worship was tied into the Roman economy. Um, so take a city like Tyatira, which was, which was a city that Revelation was written to. Tyatira was known for its um, trade guilds, like a trade union. And um, to, there was many trade guilds there. And if you were a tradesman in the first century, you needed to join a trade guild for economic security. Well, at these trade guilds, um, there, you, know, you, you would often have um, uh, patron deities for the guilds, right? And, um, and so to be a member of the trade guild, you would have to worship uh, false gods and maybe even worship uh, images of Caesar. We do know that... Um, that you know there were temples dedicated to the worship of caesar that he had his own temple establishment uh and there were temples in ephesus and pergamum and smyrna by the way and um we 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 have evidence that uh some some presidents of these trade guilds were also associated with the temple cult that worships caesar there's documented Mm -hmm. evidence for that so all to say what is the mark of the beast it could be a number of things in the ancient world it could have been coinage it could have been um economic uh uh compromise in these trade guilds you know christians could not buy and sell that well if they were part of a trade guild that worshiped caesar they would not be part of them you know they would Mm. they couldn't be part of the economy in that sense um so you have all this data and so coming you know i I think all of the above is probably a reference to the mark of the beast there i think for us um and so by the way i said that the mark of the beast is probably invisible i still think that but even invisible realities can have earthly physical manifestations. So for example, scripture says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, literally marked with the Holy Spirit. Now that's invisible. You don't see the the seal of the Holy Spirit on my body right now. Nobody does. And I can't see the one on yours or whatever. But there are fruits of the Spirit that show themselves in physical ways, the way we love each other and care for one another, the way we show goodness to each other. And so the same goes for the mark of the beast. You can't see the invisible mark, but you can see the fruits of the mark you know, the fruits of the devil, the fruits of evil and so forth. Mm. Um, so, um, so you have all those factors. And of course, we can, we can talk about what that means for the 21st century if you want, but I'll leave it there. That's a lot of information. 
but I think it gives people a sense of where I'm coming from on this question. Awesome. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's really, really helpful. Okay. Uh, rapture. Mm. Um, as much as you want to go in detail there, you probably could okay. spend a lot of time. Um, will there be a rapture? When is it? And why is it not in the next week? So in my book, I actually give a date when it's going to happen and the time. So everybody's like totally, totally going to be blessed by that. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, just kidding. Uh, so yeah, the, you know, the rapture idea has made its way in our culture, in our movies, in our films, in our books, in a lot of people um, uh, seem to think there's going to be a rapture. And by rapture, what most people mean, um, and I'm talking within American evangelicalism, what most people mean is that at any moment, Jesus uh, will come back and he will, you know, in a sense, it'd be it's secret, it's totally imminent, we don't know when it's going to be. And he's going to come back and snatch up the saints into the clouds, into the sky, uh, in, in, a, in a wink of the eye. And then he's going to take them back to heaven. And then at that point, sometime after that, you know, people debate whether it's months or days or years even. Sometime after that, there's going to be a period of tribulation where the Antichrist comes and has about seven years of tribulation. And then at the end of that, uh, Jesus with the saints comes back for a thousand year reign. But that rapture idea, um, you know, is is very popular that we're going to escape the tribulation. And um, so so a lot of people point to several texts in Scripture to make the case for uh, the rapture. Um, people point to John chapter 14. Uh, people point to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the famous one, of course, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, and, um, and so there's this idea that, that, um, you know, uh, Paul talks about, um, you know, uh, this, the saints and being caught up in the, in the air and, and that when, when Jesus appears, they'll go out to meet him in the air. That's kind of the language that's used. And, and that's, that's the rapture text. Now, uh, as for me, I don't think that that's how it's going to happen. I think what Paul means there is something a little bit different. Um, so Paul uses very, um, very, uh, significant words to talk about going out to meet the Lord, for example, um, that idea, um, of meeting the Lord is actually one that's used. It's a word, it's a couple of words, but this one in particular is used in antiquity to, um, to refer to citizens of a city going out to meet a dignitary. In the ancient world, the practice was that whenever a dignitary, say a king, a governor, an empress, or whoever, if, as they're coming into the city, it's customary and respectful for the citizens of the city to stop what they're doing and to go out of the city walls, out on the path, and parade the dignitary into the city. Okay? And, and then the idea is that we welcome you to your city. This is your home, your city, you're, you are sovereign. We recognize your sovereignty and we're going to go out to meet you and bring you back. This is the same word, the same concept that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it's the same concept that he uses, uh, or that discusses elsewhere. Uh, and the idea that I think is happening is that, yes, Jesus will return. But once he returns... The saints will, you know, and the metaphor here is that metaphor, go out to meet him only to usher him back into the city, to the world, 
that 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 that's that's the practice of the ancient world. And again, our assumption here is that these texts had to have meant something to the first century readers. How would they have interpreted this? So how would the readers of Thessal uh, living in Thessalonica, how would they have understood this going out to meet a dignitary? They would have understood it just like that. In their mind, they've seen this happen before. They've probably participated in, in these sorts of parades. And so the best explanation here is to read it in accordance with that idea. That yes, Jesus will come, we'll go out to meet him, and we'll immediately usher him into his kingdom. Now, what all of that entails is that there's not going to be a third coming of Jesus. So in my view, the one I argue for in my book is that when Jesus returns, it's not going to be a secret rapture that he takes us away from the earth for seven or so years. No, no, he's going to come and we're going to escort him to the earth immediately. And that's his second coming. Under the popular view, you have a secret rapture, Jesus comes for that, and then he comes a third time, you know, to set up uh, an everlasting kingdom. But I don't see three comings of Jesus in scripture. I only see two, and this is the best way, I think, to um, to understand these passages that are often interpreted as rapture passages. You know, it's important to remember that uh, a lot of our eschatology is surrounding the rapture and the tribulation, that's pretty new stuff. You know, this is 150, 180 years old. It's, you know, and for me, I want my theology to go back to the apostles, right? I want it to be old. I don't want anything new necessarily. And so, so for me, my, you know, my, my work was done as a sort of historian in some sense. Like, I'm just saying, what did they believe? And what was Paul saying? And what was the New Testament teaching? I want, I want to get to that um, uh, for my answer. Yeah, that's really cool. I appreciate that. Um, have you seen Nicolas Cage's Left Behind movie? And, you know, I have not seen that version, but I saw the Kirk Cameron version that was mm-hmm. before that, what, 15, 20 years maybe yeah. before that? Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I guess I, I should I, go back and watch the Nick Cage version. <laughs> I, I enjoyed the first one. I watched the Nick Cage version for Nick Cage. Yeah. Uh, it was, we'll have to review it or something. Sure. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, petition to get Nick uh, to to get Matthew, Matthew Halstead to review <laughs> Nick Cage's video. Um, it's it's a it's a thriller. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, approaching the end here. All right. So, in a Christ is not Joe Biden. <laughs> maybe. Uh, quick thoughts on why you don't think the Antichrist is Joe Biden or insert whoever else is a popular leader today. We do have this tendency in our culture to um, make politicians or world leaders or, you know, even entertainers or turn them into the Antichrist, that this is the person the Bible was predicting and so forth. Um, so, so I do believe there will be a final Antichrist. Okay. I don't think there's much we can know about him, though. There are a few uh, key details um, in scripture, you have uh, the word antichrist used. By the way, it's never used in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's never used there at all. Um, it's it's used in First um, and Second John, and it's used uh, five times. And out of those five times, uh, most of them are not in reference to a final antichrist. Um, so there's so little we can know about this antichrist figure from First and Second John. Uh, Paul does talk about him in one of his letters to Thessalonica. He talks about him, but he doesn't use the name Antichrist. He uses the word or the words man of lawlessness. Okay. And uh, he tells us a little bit more there about who this is. Now, debates 
have been waged uh, about, you know, is Paul uh, talking about a future end time figure there or not? You know, uh, my opinion is that he is. I think he is. Um, and then lastly, you have this beast in Revelation who seems to be around uh, whenever Jesus uh, returns. Um, so, so what I like to say is that I think, um, you know, for John in Revelation, when he's talking about the beast, he does have him around when Jesus returns, but that doesn't mean he thinks that that um, the Roman Empire is going to be around at that time. I think for John, he probably, you know, he 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 knows that that when Jesus does return, he's going to knock Satan out, right? He's going to totally defeat evil. And in John, in John's mind, the epitome of evil is the Roman Empire, uh, if, you know, in focus of which is Nero, especially in Domitian. And so he uses this imagery of beast to represent the evil of the world. And, and so when Jesus comes, he's going to destroy the evil of the world. And the evil in the world for John's time was Babylon or the Roman Empire, you might say. Um, it, the thing with Revelation is there's so much imagery that it's flexible and it can be used for any era, you know, for the most part. And so I don't really rely a lot on Revelation to tell me about the market, uh, to tell me about the Antichrist. I, yeah. I, I run to uh, first, second John and Thessalonians. And, and what we learn here is that um, whoever the Antichrist is, um, he's probably going to be an insider because, um, uh, you know, I don't, you know, He's associated, it seems, with false teaching. Um, he stands in the temple and declares himself to be God and that kind of thing. Um, and, and in the New Testament, the temple is always a spiritual temple. It's, you know, we are the temple of Christ. And that's how Paul conceives of the temple. And, um, and so I think Paul's referring to the church there when he talks about the temple. He's not talking about a physical temple, in my opinion. Um, and so it seems as if that this is somebody who will... Um, well, it says actually that he'll lead people into apostasy. He'll be around for an apostasy, so um, a heresy, we might say. And so um, I, I joke in the book, I was like, I think we've been looking in the wrong, uh, at all the wrong people, right? We tend to look at non-Christians. We tend to think of um, as an outsider. Um, but actually, I think the Antichrist, whoever he might be, is probably somebody who's going to be very appealing, appealing enough to Christians to lead them astray. And, and so, and, and if I'm right about this whole Mark of the Beast idea that, Mm. um, I think, I think the Mark of the Beast was a first century reality. I think it's a 21st century. reality. I think it's all, every generation has a Mark of the Beast. Um, you know, whether it was in a, you know, the swastika of the previous generation, or it's the, the, um, the hood of the Ku Klux Klan, or if, you know, we can, you know, we can look at all sorts of different things that qualify as the mark of the beast. It's anything that represents um, the, the icons of Satan, right? It's any, and that could be, that could literally be anything that, you know, in a sense. And so, um, and in fact, sadly, um, you know, what if the mark of the beast is something that we don't, that we don't even realize is, is, you know, it's something that we that we take for granted. Like, think of it like this: What if what if you're a church, and you choose to spend a hundred million dollars on your sanctuary when you could be using that money for the poor or for evangelism and missions and uh, sending Bibles out to people? You know, what really is the mark of the beast at this point? You know, our own pride to make a name for ourselves and that sort of thing. We really need to be thinking about these questions, um, I think, and um, and really begin to 
to ask ourselves the, the tough questions. Um, because if we're not careful, um, we could be led astray by the spirit of the age in a, in a sense, right? Um, and, 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 and be led astray into, into Satan's uh, sinister plots, right? And I'm not, I'm not one to say there's a demon behind every bush, right? I don't want to get into that mentality, but I do want us to put on Jesus' eyes and Jesus' lenses so that we can discern and make better, better um, uh, decisions about, um, you know, what we do with our yeah. money for crying out loud or, you know, that kind of thing. And so, um, uh, and we all have a lot to learn on this. Uh, so um, we need to be very gracious. We need to be critiquing ourselves before we start critiquing our neighbor, of course. But yeah. um, so, so I, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's sort of where I head uh, in that, in, in these sorts of directions when it comes to the mark of the beast and um, to the Antichrist. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So you don't, you said you don't know a lot about the Antichrist. Well, I've got a book about him that could be very helpful for you. So, yeah. Yeah. That's right. And a movie too. So, you know, watch Fair out. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Well, let me, let me just say, I've, I don't have the final word on eschatology. I have a lot more to learn. Uh, that's just the truth. Anybody who says that they, you know, figured it out, chances are they haven't. And I have not figured this out. So what, what I've, what I've actually tried to show in my book is, is that there are a lot of things we can know and a lot of the things that we claim to know probably aren't correct mm -hmm. because there's a lot we simply cannot know. Um, the argument I make in the book is that really some of these prophecies about the end, we won't be able to understand them until the end, until we're able to look backwards and say, oh, that's how that worked out. It's, it's very much like the first coming of Jesus. I think this, many scholars say this, the second coming of Jesus is a lot like the first. The first coming had many prophecies about it, but a lot of people missed it. But after Jesus came, then, then they could go back and look at the Old Testament in fresh ways. Like, oh, that's mm -hmm. how that worked out. That's how he came to Bethlehem. And that's, you know, how all these things happen. I yeah. think the second coming is going to be like that. There are a ton of prophecies about the second coming and all the events about um, that era. Um, but I'm, I'm not convinced that we'll, that we even can know much about it until afterward, then we can look back and say, oh, I missed that part. I understand. And so my book is to say, let's tame our speculations a little bit. It's fun to speculate and there is room for healthy speculation. Um, there's a God honoring ways to speculate, I think, but most of the speculation that we see in a ton of these modern day prophecy books and prophecy teachers, I think it's not only mistaken, but I think it's fundamentally unhealthy and it causes deep anxiety in the hearts of sincere believers who just want to know Jesus better. And we need to watch how we need to watch what we say. And so I try to say, let's, let's be tame here. Let's domesticate a little bit our speculations and any speculations that we make, it must be consistent with the, with what scripture says. We can't go we can't go beyond that. And if we do, there are dire consequences uh, that I, that I think um, unfortunately happen, you know, yeah. in that respect. All right. Awesome. All right. Pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Everybody go check out your his book. Uh, uh, stay tuned uh, for more on uh, how to get Dr. Halstead's book for free. We will be having a book giveaway. Uh, Dr. Halstead, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure and I hope you have a great rest of your night. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be on the show and, and, and thank you for the great conversation.